When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up, guys? This is the Do Big Things Podcast. What are we on? Uh, episode 136, I believe, something like that. Oh, it must be summertime because I am busy. Um, I'm sure you all are, right? Uh, everyone's out there getting after it. The weather's beautiful. Uh, camping time is here. Races are here. Uh, yeah, just been getting outside and getting after it a lot. And that's when everything gets busy. You know, I live in Colorado. Like Friends want to come to Colorado in the summer. Family wants to come to Colorado in the summer. Uh, lots going on, but I'm not complaining. I'm super thankful for it all. Um, just got back from a great camping trip, and it's just one of many that's going to be happening over the summer. Uh, how are you guys? How is your summer beginning? You guys training, getting after it? Uh training for that big race let me know i'd like to hear about it um i have a great guest for you today morgan hawes um this is a guy who just climbed mount everest okay and it's not the only big mountain that he's climbed uh these opportunities to climb big mountains just seem to fall in front of him um you know like a friend's going and the trip is all set up do you want to come type of thing and he he's just someone who says yes to life the opportunity arises and morgan goes for it so i had a blast talking with him um we get in we don't get into his past too much but you know we get into what it's like to be a gay man who is you know going out and climbing mount everest you know i don't think it's huge in his community and it's definitely not big in the community of uh, Manhattan, where he lives. So um, just a really interesting dude. It was an honor to have him on the show. And I really enjoyed talking to him about, uh, yeah, climbing the biggest mountain in the world. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm going to make this intro short, um, but I want to thank our sponsors. Alter Ego Running, Athletic Brewing, Bigger Than the Trail, and Exoskin. Stick around to the end of the show and we'll get you some discount codes or they should be in the show notes as well. Listen, I really want to thank my Patreon supporters and I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in. I can't do this without you guys and I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. So thank you guys. And uh, let's just get into it. Let's get into this show. This is a good one. So uh, get your ears on and kick back or get that run going or whatever you're doing. This is going to be a good one. So hang tight. Here we go. What do you do for a living? How did you get out of the Zoom thing? Uh, So I do eyelash extensions for a living on clients. And so there's really, there's no remote work for that. Uh, For sure. But yeah. you must have been out of work for a while. 
Yeah, I certainly was. Actually, it helped me, allowed me to do a bunch of climbing, which was good. It was kind of an unintended benefit. Um, and that is what I kept myself busy doing. But yeah, it's definitely been a slow road back. Okay. Yeah. So that was climbing and preparation training for Mount Everest. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Although Everest wasn't exactly on my plan at the time. Um, <laughs> but I did start doing climbing and I kind of, I did all of these, you know, what ended up being the prerequisites for uh, my Everest climb that I really kind of got into a lot during COVID. Okay. But it wasn't on your list. So how did this creep into your life last minute? Like, I mean, it's only uh, a, a 29,000 foot mountain. I mean, <laughs> easy, right? Yeah. Well, so I, I think Everest in specific wasn't necessarily on my list up until probably like February of this year, um, leaving in April. So it all kind of came quickly. Um, I did have other, other like big mountain plans, but Everest just kind of wasn't one of them until kind of came about. Um, so a little bit of background though, in the last 12 months, um, I spent four months of them climbing, um, which is a lot. I did in the last 12 months, I did Denali in June. I did Ahmed de Blom in October, November, and then Everest in April, May. Um, so it was, it was a big calendar year and those things definitely helped kind of prepare me for what was Everest. But, um, my big kind of goal and plan was to actually do K2, which is another oh. mountain in Pakistan. Um, but through kind of a, bunch of circumstances there the k2 trip that i was going to go on filled up last minute and so then i sort of pivoted i was like well i should get the 8,000 meter experience beforehand anyways i mean jumping to k2 would be a huge 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 you know jump anyways so um i kind of pivoted and was like well i really want to climb something i need to get some big climbs in first before i do k2 anyways and um i need to do it sooner rather than later so it was like in february where i decided like well i'm gonna do everest so i did that <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah yeah, it's amazing to me how you could just jump into something like that without having, you know, having this thing planned out for years and years ahead of time. Um, and, you know, I come to you via uh, Jason Howell, and I've had him on the show. He's a great guy, and he spoke highly of you. So uh, any any friend of Jason's is a friend of mine. But um, so have you been mountaineering your whole life? Or how did you work your way into this? No, so I have not been out here my whole life. Um, to be honest, so I came from Central Oregon, or that's where I was raised. And um, I didn't, my dad is very outdoors. And my dad's also a Green Beret, like Jason, who was on your show. Um, so very capable outdoors, very strong, very man's man. And I was absolutely not that. I was like an effeminate little gay boy growing up in the middle of Oregon that hated doing anything outside. Okay. So um, I didn't really do much growing up. Um, my dad did make me do a couple things, you know, kind of a um, begrudgingly did it. and as time went on, I realized a lot of the lessons and things that he taught me ended up sticking. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of things that I took or took with me as I started to climb. But no, my first real climb, if I want to consider it that, would be Kilimanjaro. And I did that in 2019. Okay. Um, and I kind of fell into that. One of my best, my best girlfriends that I worked out with a bunch, she, we were sitting at dinner one night with a few of our other friends. And she says, you guys, I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm like, I want to go with you. Like I've, I've been kind of thinking about this in the back of my mind for a really long time. And now she already had, you know, the plans and the trip set up. And I know that she does things really well. So I said, can I tag along with you? She said, absolutely. So once again, like that was maybe two months before leaving for Kilimanjaro. Now to give those some background at that point, you know, I was physically training a lot, like I was fit, but when it really came to, you know, my outdoor experience, I had basically none. Um, my first night in the tent on Kilimanjaro, I'm sitting in there and I'm like, oh, this is how the sleeping bag works, figuring out all the zippers and how they like, <laughs> how there's something that goes over my head. I'm literally 
discovering this as I'm in the tent on Mount Kilimanjaro after my first day climbing. Um, and I knew it would be a crash course, but that was kind of that moment where I was like, wow, yeah, you're really very new to this. Um, <laughs> and I, I turned out, it turned out well, you know, like she and I flew up that mountain, um, had a great time. And I had an inkling that it was going to be something that I was going to really like and get into it um, prior to going. So I, I bought all really good gear. Um, I really, I thought I'd, I, I thought I'd like it and I was correct, luckily. Um, yeah, so it kind of, it went crazy from there. Wow. And that was your first mountain. Yeah. Yeah. In 2019 mm -hmm. in like, uh, August, 2019. Okay. And I, I mean, I live in Colorado and the big mountains out here are 14,000 foot peaks. We climb those on the weekends and, you know, go out and have fun with those, but you've never climbed a 14 er this was literally your very first mountain of all time. Yeah. Just it was blows awesome. my mind. Like I didn't even really, you know, I live in the middle of Manhattan. I live like you can see from this view, like I live two blocks from Times Square. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so like, it's very, um, no mountains, no, no mountains. And you know, I think some people from the city probably they go up to like Vermont and whatnot on occasion, but I don't do any of that. I, I don't know. I just don't have any group of friends here that does any of that. Right. I've never been super interested in that, but I was super interested in bigger expedition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was not only my first mountain, but like, since I was a kid, like my first hiking, like my first really outdoorsy experience at all. Wow. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a gamble. Um, and it turned out great, but, um, yeah, it was, I didn't, I didn't actually even tell the company or even my friend so much. I, my friend kind of knew, but like, I didn't tell my friend just how inexperienced I was when I was doing it. Um, because I figured like most people were just like, absolutely not. You're not they're doing gonna, that. Right, they're going to kick you off the team. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and yet I did it. Wow. Well, okay. So let's back up a little bit before that. So what was your physical fitness like? I think you said that you were fit, but not into these outdoor expeditions. So like, what kind of exercises were you doing be before this? And, and I don't know, did you do sports growing up or anything like that? No sports growing up. Um, as the kind of feminine gay kid, I was always kind of afraid to. So mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was always, I was always thin and relatively good at endurance that like it kind of came naturally to me but I didn't do any extra sports growing up okay. so then it started to come into you know my my late 20s but in, in the gay culture especially in New York City there's a big emphasis placed upon looks and your you know physical fitness helps you attain those looks mm -hmm. so I was always very motivated strictly by vanity um it was really just like Let's work out to look as good as we can because that's what it takes to sort of fit in in this little subculture that I'm part of. Sure. So it it hit though when I started sort of developing this curiosity when it came to mountaineering. Um, whether um, it, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, here we are as a whole group, all these gay men working out so hard and putting so much energy into into looks, but really not thinking that much about the fitness aspect. Um, fitness was kind of secondary to the fact of looks. Right. Um, so I thought to myself, I'm like, how, I, I'm curious, I'm interested, and I want to see, after working out so hard, like, what could this physical fitness that I'm achieving secondarily actually achieve? Um, what could I, what could I do with it? Um, and so at the time, prior to doing Kilimanjaro, my, my girlfriend and I, she, she and I met doing Barry's Boot Camp. Have you ever heard of Barry's Boot Camp? No, I'm familiar with boot camps, but no, what, what's Barry's Boot Camp? So it's a mix of, there's some cardio and there's a lot of floor. I actually did a lot of the floor work, um, but it's just a, it's the workout class and they're, they're all over now, but like it's a big thing in New York city, but 
it's like a class you go into. Um, it's like dark, loud music, you know, it's kind of a fun experience. Um, but it definitely worked you. And that's all we did. We did it a lot, but we did just Barry's boot camp six days a week for years prior to Barry's or prior to Kilimanjaro. Okay. Um, then after, so I did Kilimanjaro, I did Barry's for like four and a half years or so. And then January of 2021, I switched to CrossFit. Um, and that was after I'd done some mountains, but, um, so I switched to CrossFit. I'm still doing CrossFit now. That's kind of been what my big training plan has been since then. Um, I did incorporate for Everest as well as for Ama de Blom and for Denali. I incorporated a little bit of kind of low intensity, long range cardio, I would suppose you'd call it, but I don't know, you know, being that you guys do ultra running or ultra marathons, it's probably nothing like what you guys actually train for. But I would typically do around like prior to Everest, I did like 10 CrossFit sessions per week. Um, there's a few different types, but 10 of them per week, plus some like long range cardio. Okay. So is that running, walking on a treadmill, hiking? What does that look like? You know, prior to, especially Everest, it was usually a loaded pack. I would usually put anywhere from 25 to 40 pounds in a pack. And then I liked to do the stair, the stair mill. Oh, so in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I don't really, there, there is some others outdoor running trails and stuff in the city, but I'm not I don't, yeah. I, with a big heavy pack on and whatnot, I just, also the weather is terrible and it's just easier in terms of timing. So yeah, I would usually do just like the stair mill inside um, with the pack on them. And sometimes okay. actually, if like in my building, I don't have a stair mill, there's a stair master, but not a stair mill. So sometimes in my building, I live on the 30th floor. So I would just go up and down several times oh, sure. um, with the pack on. Yeah. Well, I'm get you, guessing that that caught uh, a few people's attention and raised a couple eyebrows along the way. Like, who is this crazy guy with the heavy pack on going up and down our stairs? <laughs> yeah, and I'd be in shorts, but then also still in my hiking boots with big socks on. Right. <laughs> like shorts and a sleeveless, but then with a big pack on. I mean, I look ridiculous, but <laughs> I, I mean, people here are pretty you know, they just, there's so many other things to look at. They just look away. <laughs> I know it's funny when people see that they either are really curious or they don't want to know at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. On occasion, you'll actually see people here in the gyms. Um, when you can tell that they're training for some sort of a mountain thing, because they'll have a pack on and they'll have boots on. Um, but in a gym, like it's a very, I feel like it's a very New York thing because most other places people are going to be doing their training outside, but here, yeah. you know, oftentimes we're stuck inside. So you make the best of it. Wow. Wow. And so Kilimanjaro for you was just like kind of jumping on the bandwagon with a friend that already had this thing set up. Yeah. Exactly okay. It. So you jumped on and it sounds like it was a success. You said you cruised up yeah. and down it. I'm just yeah. curious. I've never done Kilimanjaro for you cruising up and down it and, and making it seem sort of effortless by the sounds of it. Like what's a good time for something like that? What do you mean? Like time of year? Um, no, the time that it took you guys to do the entire hike. Oh, you know, so the thing with Kilimanjaro is each day that you're climbing isn't necessarily that challenging. Um, there's, there's ways that you can do it in short amounts of time versus longer. I think the shortest route is maybe three or four days and the longest is like nine days. We did this, a standard, I think it's called the motion. We did like a six day, um, six day. six day journey up and down. And that was great. The problem with it. Yes, you physically could do it a lot faster, but you get up to such an altitude and you do get up to a significant altitude for Kilimanjaro. You get up to that altitude. If you get up there too quickly, then you get altitude sickness. Right. Um, so you really do need to take the time to get up and, you know, enjoy the, the saying on Kilimanjaro is pole pole, which in, which means slowly, slowly, like go slowly. Um, so really you should take your time. And I, I thought it was perfect for us doing a six day. Like I didn't have any altitude issues whatsoever. Um, we just really had an enjoyable trip. Nice. 
So it's hike up to a certain elevation, pitch a tent, stay overnight, hang out, socialize a little bit. Then the next day, climb a little bit higher and do the same thing yep. over and over until you make it to the summit. Yep. And on Kilimanjaro, it's, you go from, you know, camp to camp, to another camp, to another camp. So each night you're spending a night in a different place. Um, and then, you know, we had it, it was all very fully serviced. And so, you know, you'd show up and they'd already have our tent set up. They'd run out and grab your pack off of you and give you some tea. You know, it's a very nice, nice. luxurious experience. Yeah. Um, so it was a nice, it was my nice first foray into mountaineering because everything's so nicely taken care of for you. Um, and that was definitely in contrast to like later what I would be doing with like Denali, Amadablam, and then Everest, you know, it's crazy to think of like the simplicity that is Kilimanjaro and then how quickly I ended up doing the more complicated and complex and technical climbs too. Yeah, because Kilimanjaro is a little bit more quote unquote easy and attainable, right? Like it's basically just a hike, like a walk up, like a trail to the top almost, right? No, that's exactly it. And you're in your, you're in like hiking boots the whole time. Um, you put some layers on, but it's cool because you do get a sense of what it's like to do like a summit bid. You know, you leave in the middle of the night, climb up in the dark, you got to put it on your layers. Like you, you get a, a little feel for it without actually having to know any sort of technical skills. Um, yeah, you really, you can, you can do it as an amateur. I think that also the better shape that you're in, the more pleasant of an experience you will have. Um, and that's not to say like, there's, there's, you'll see people like, as I'm, we were, we were kind of the first people up there that day, but coming down, there's people up near the summit who were, it didn't really appear to be in that great of shape. Right. Um, and they can make it up. Oftentimes they can make it up. It might be the most miserable, terrible experience of their life, but they can do it. Um, but if you're in great shape, you know, you get up there and it's just, it's very, the whole pleasant, the whole experience is very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always tell people like, yeah, you know, an amateur, you don't need to have climbing skills. You don't need to have rope skills. You don't need to even have crampons or know how to use them. All of those things you don't need to know or no, you don't need to know, but you know, the better shape you're in, the more pleasant it's going to be. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure your fitness carried you a long ways. It's better than just like not having any fitness at all. It sounds like you did all right out there. No altitude yeah. sickness. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. yeah, no, it was great. And like the same thing, my girlfriend, she definitely has a little bit more outdoor experience than me, but she had no climbing. Um, and, you know, we both just, we flew up that mountain. It was great. Nice. And so what are you thinking when you summit Kilimanjaro? Are you thinking, uh, we're going to do another peak after this a couple months down the road? Or just, are you just engaged in the moment and staying present? Or what's going through your mind? You know, so for me, when I reach the summit of a mountain, I, I am probably like the least sentimental person you'll ever meet. Uh, it's very te- like once I'm up there, I'm like, okay, great. Now I just need to take my pictures, take whatever videos I want to do, take a look around, you know, appreciate the moment for a second. And then it's down. Like I'm, okay. I'm done. Now my objective has been met. And now I also have to get down safely. And yeah. in most, in most mountains, not necessarily Kilimanjaro, but in most like the bigger mountains, most of the accidents and fatalities occur on the descent. So I'm thinking the whole time, like I need to, you know, I have to really stay focused, stay on it. Um, and that's, that's challenging, but so no, I will say though, reaching Kilimanjaro and having it be, and I, I don't, this sounds cocky, but I don't mean it to be this way, but like as easy as it was for me, I'm like, okay, great. This, this was the beginning. This is just the very beginning for me. Like this is a taste and it turned out well, I liked the way it tasted and I'm ready to go for more. So yeah, immediately when I'm at the summit, I'm like, ah, I can get used to this feeling. And I knew that I would go do more significant mountains after mm. that. Mm. What was it that hooked you in? I mean, the whole thing is probably just a sort of an addictive experience, but is there a certain one single thing that hooked you in? I can't really stick it to one specific thing. Mm. Um, the reason why I like the mountaineering experience overall, though, is because 
like all of this preparation, all of this planning, all of these choices that you make, both in terms of the prep for months and even years prior to the climb, as well as all of the choices and things that you make on the climb itself, uh, they all precipitate to this one event of just getting to, you know, a summit. Uh, for some reason, I like that. I like thinking about how every single decision that I'm making can affect my success or not. Um, yeah, that, that just suits well with my personality. I like the preparation. And really, I think the most successful mountaineers are very prepared. You, know, mm. you really think, you, you think about everything and how it can affect your climb. So how much preparation does something like your first peak, Kilimanjaro, take? Like, are you at home watching the YouTube videos and studying and looking at other people's routes and reading blogs? Or um, what, what was your experience? So yeah, for, for me, for Kilimanjaro being not only my first climb, but also like my first outdoor experience, <laughs> the research that I put into that was incredible because, I mean, this sounds so, I, I feel like I, I can confidently say this now because now I've proved myself as an actual mountaineer. Sure. But um, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading through and they, there's suggested things that you should bring in terms of like clothing, for example. And I'm trying to learn what they mean by when they say a base layer, a mid layer <laughs> or a fleece a hard shell, a soft shell. I'm like, what is, I had no idea what any of this stuff was, <laughs> let alone how it works. And then let alone what I needed to get. So I spent so much time even just researching like the gear. But then once I've kind of figured out, once I've got my kit done, which took an eternity uh, or just a massive amount of time, then I went really, really deep into like researching all the routes. I didn't really want to be surprised by any of it because I already knew that I was going to be full of surprises having no experience. So I went deep into every video that I could find on YouTube, every person's account. And on Kilimanjaro, there's, there's thousands of people's accounts out there. So I just kept reading and reading and reading and get as much as information as I could. So even, you know, as, as we're climbing, like I was able to tell Sophie, the friend that I was with, I was like, oh, we're going to see this next. We're going to see that next. So, you know, in turn, I didn't end up feeling surprised by that much of anything um, because I did a lot of prep. And the same thing now has definitely happened for every single mountain that I've done. As soon as I sort of get that on my radar, I start trying to scoop up as much information as I can, um, whether it be Reddit, YouTube, um, and just just so I'm surprised as little as possible so that I, so that I kind of know what's going up, um, know what to expect. And yeah, I, I, I enjoy that process. That's part of the process that I consider of the, the preparation, you know, I, and I like that part. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge part of it. It takes a lot of time and a lot of preparation. And it's probably a good thing that you enjoy that. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. things might not have turned out so lucky for you. Yeah, okay, so totally. you got a taste in your mouth of, uh, you know, summoning one of these big peaks. Um, what was next? You come back home from, from Africa. What's next? Are you thinking about the next project? Do you give it a couple months and let it roll around in your head? What, what does it look like? So Kilimanjaro was short enough that I was basically ready to let's do the next thing. But okay. I know this all, this all takes like, time and planning. And that was also in, um, I think August of 2019. So I got back home, you know, digested that whole experience, had a great like, holiday season. Um, and then shortly thereafter, COVID started. Um, I had a little bit of other travels kind of in between, but then, you know, really COVID kind of started happening in March of 2020. Um, and so that kind of screwed with my plans, but, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't sure exactly, you know, what I could do. So yeah. after sort of reeling for a little while, then I, I, thought to myself, I'm like, okay, well, I want to keep climbing. COVID's happening. So I had nothing but time to really start to research, you know, what I needed to do in order to do bigger polar climbs and then maybe go do those things. So the first thing I set out to do was like, okay, well, I need to actually learn how to do mountaineering now. 
technical mountaineering. I need to learn how to do all this stuff because, you know, at the time, like I said, I'd done Killy, so I, I now knew what it was like to be up at high altitude, and I now know that I had an interest, but I didn't have the technical skills yet. So I did some research, and I found there's a company called Alpine Ascents that I went with. Um, they offer a whole host of different courses. Um, and I took like a 10-day mountaineering course that was oh. taught on Mount Baker and Mount Rainier up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that was like six days on Baker first. And that's teaching you everything from rope skills and how to crampon. They also made me do everything. Like you, you cook all of your own food, bring all of your own food, proportion all your own food, pack your own tent, use your own stove. Like it truly, they made me have to learn to do everything. And I knew I was going to be uncomfortable because I didn't have this experience. And to be honest, I was never super interested in doing a lot of that part of it. Sure. Um, so I, I found though that I was still able to get into a course that they offered in August of 2020. Um, so during COVID, but I was able to still fly over there. Um, and it was great. I got also a break from New York City during COVID and got to go outside and not have to wear a mask for 10 days because you're just outside on the side of the glacier. Mm. Um, but that's where I started to learn like the actual really technical skills. Um, so then we did a quick summit of Mount Baker, go back down. We spent another night in Seattle, one night in Seattle, and then went up and did Rainier and kind of put some of those technical skills and rope skills and all of the stuff to, to work. Um, and it was fun. Like I, I got to climb Rainier and Rainier is this great training ground because you get like little pit, little bits and little snippets of all of the things that you'll experience in other big glaciated peaks. Sure. Um, but in much, you know, it's, it's, you do it in a few days as opposed to a huge long expedition. Mm. So once again, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a way that I could be like, well, do I like this? Because now it's not just a walk up. Now I'm actually having to do mountaineering. I have to mm. actually use these things. Mm. Um, and I still did. I really liked it. So that was August of 2020. Um, and then uh, they usually have like a course called a Denali prep course, which is a specific, like specific for Denali. But I did really well on that course. And the instructors told me without even, I didn't really have an interest at the time, but the instructors told me, they said, hey, we think you'd be great on Denali. You should, you know, if you're interested in it, you can do it. We'll give you the approval. So you get like a little report card at the end of the, at the end of the course. Um, and they gave me great marks. And they said, you know, we think you'll be great at Denali if you're interested in it. So I'm like, huh, all right. So maybe I'll do Denali. So, so that was August, 2020. I got Denali on the books very shortly thereafter once they told me I could do it. But once again, I hadn't thought of Denali before this. So I did Denali then in um, May, June of 2021. Yep. Yes, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, of 2021. Um, and that was a huge, huge step up in terms of skill and requirements and length and everything. Um, that was a big jump going from you know a training course and doing Baker and Rainier to Denali all yeah. at once was, that was a huge jump. Um, right. And honestly, I did, great on that climb. I had a great team. I did that with Alpine Ascents as well. Um, but that's a very unique climb in the sense that it's not serviced like Himalayan climbs are, meaning you do everything on Denali too. You pack up your tent, you basically cook for yourself. There's some help a little bit from your guides, but you don't have porters. You don't have Sherpas. You know, you, you're, you're a mountain man for, or mountain woman for those three weeks that you're climbing. Um, and Denali is such a cool experience. I'm really glad I did it because it did make me practice and learn those skills, you know, um, unlike a, a lot of people, if they only ever do Himalayan climbs, they don't really know what it's like to have to, to carry your tent and set it up mm. in the wind or make a tent platform. You know, there's a lot of skills that I think doing Denali helped kind of solidify for me. Um, and then after I got back from Denali in June, that's kind of, I had my, my bucket list, my site set on K2 for this summer, mm -hmm. but 
the person I'd always wanted to decline K2 with was Garrett Madison. So I contacted him and he says, well, obviously you can't do K2 right now, just having done Denali. Like you need to get some technical experience and you know, we want to, I'd also like to meet you. So he's like, can you come climb Ama de Blom with me? That was like three weeks before leaving for Ama de Blom. He's like, can you come climb Ama de Blom with me? And I'm like, uh, well, sure, sure. I'll make it happen. So, so that was in October of 2021. Um, I literally talked with him and then was on a flight three weeks later um, to Nepal and I did Ama de Blom. Um, and that was a, that, that's a lot more technical of an expedition, a lot more technical climbing. Um, yeah, but I also got to feel what it was like to be in the Himalayas, to, to do the trek in, did this really technical climb, came back from it. And then after that's when um, the K2 expedition sort of fell through because I didn't register fast enough and that trip filled up. So that's when I pivoted to Everest and that's where we are now. It sounds like you didn't have any plans on doing any of these mountains. It sounds like you just kind of fell into them all or these opportunities just sort of appeared for you. Um, yeah. Do, do you ever spend much time thinking about that? Like, like how and why and wh what does this all mean? And where is this all going? And am I supposed to do something like write a book or <laughs> do you ever think about that? No, to be honest, I haven't. I, you know, I was very purpose driven when it came to Kilimanjaro and then the course that I did afterwards, like that was very much like, hey, well, I know I need to do a course in order to open up the door for me to be, you know, a decent team member and a good mountaineer after that. But yeah, after that, after and the Denali course, opened up for you, it just kind of yeah. appeared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then once I did Denali and I realized like, oh, that's a tough, Denali is like a legitimate tough climb. Then I was like, well, I could do some other stuff. Um, and then Ama de Blom, which many people say is harder than Everest. I mean, I could go on about that for forever, but um, I think at that point, I just felt a little bit more confident in my skills as a mountaineer. So I was like, okay, well, I can do within reason more so whatever I want. So yeah, and those other things just kind of fell into place. Yeah, I don't, it's weird how that happens. <laughs> it's pretty awesome though. <laughs> um, well, that's so and cool. I just sort of, when it came to like physical training, a lot of people are like, well, it's like, how did you train? I mean, I just, I tried to just stay really fit. Like I basically tried to keep myself ready in case there was going to be a climb coming up that I, you know, was going to get short notice for like Amit Um, That way I could just go. I didn't have to, you know, start some crazy training regimen a year before. I just want to stay on this crazy training regimen. So. Yep. Yep. So you're working out all the time. You're pretty fit. You're around. It wasn't really an issue for you. Yeah, no fitness you know, knock on wood, fitness has always been okay for me on all of the climbs that I've done. Um, it's, it, it, there's many ways on both Denali as well as Amit Dablam. I think that my fitness kind of came in and took up the shortcomings from my lack of experience. You know, I was able to be really fit and that would make up for some of my lack of certain skills or lack of experience sure. in certain ways. Um, so yeah, fitness has always been kind of the strong suit. That's why I've said too, like, you know, when it comes to Limanjaro or really any other mountain, if you're very fit, the whole process is going to be much more pleasant, much more enjoyable. As you get to, you know, way harder, bigger mountains, there's a certain level of fitness, A, that you have to have in order to even, you know, get to a point. Um, but yeah, so fitness really is the, it's the, it's the basis of, it's the base of this whole pyramid. For sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm curious about your friend that uh, did Kilimanjaro with you. I think you said her name was Sophie. Um, yeah. Did she come along in any of these other adventures with you? No, I tried so hard because she's a amazing. She's just, we're also such great travel buddies. She's one of my favorite people in the world that I've ever met. Um, she does not like the cold. She's Australian. She's Australian. Her fingers were super cold when we were at the summit of, um, of Kilimanjaro. And so 
So I tried to get her to, of course, do my next thing with me, which was the the course, the Baker and Rainier course. And she was almost there, but then she's like, it's going to be really cold. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's going to be cold. Right. We're not going to be able to find you any other big, warm enough mountains if Kilimanjaro was already too cold <laughs> for you. So, yeah. So she's, I mean, I, I think that she would be amazing as a climber, but yeah, the cold might get to her. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. no, I have no, I have no climbing partner. I'm curious what she thinks of you and all this stuff that you've accomplished now. Like she kind of got the ball rolling almost. And now you've done the biggest mountain in the world. Like what, what, yeah. what does she think? I mean, we actually, we still have to meet up. So we haven't got to see each other much because of COVID. She left okay. the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember her saying one time, she, she was like worried. She's like, okay, you're going up to Everest. It's very dangerous. She's like, I'm going to feel guilty if, you know, you end up dying on this mountain. And <laughs> I started this. <laughs> no kidding. But yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of pressure, yeah, but, Sophie. <laughs> yeah. She's going to love it when she hears this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, so you got the, the technical skills. So when you went to Alpine Ascents, you pretty much went by yourself. You didn't go with anyone else. So, so I'm just yeah. picturing like, you've made this decision in your mind. You're going and doing this thing all by yourself. You're learning from strangers. And so now like we're going somewhere in life, not sure where we're going, but we're definitely going somewhere. So, I mean, that is just something little like that is inspiring to me. I mean, someone just opening up that door and doing something that's a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, for me, that would be uncomfortable just signing up and going and taking these classes for days and days in the wilderness. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, um, Denali, how many days did that one take for for you? Was that, that that was several days, I'm guessing. So yeah, Denali was three weeks. Um, Denali is three weeks of, of roughing it. You know, you fly in, from you, you'd leave this little village in Alaska called Talkeetna and you take a, a plane that has skis on it that lands on the glacier. Um, and that's where you start the Denali climb. So you're really, it's very remote, very cool. Um, and yeah, to, to go back to what you just were talking about, like, you know, I, I go to all of these things. I don't know anybody. I don't know any other climbers. I don't, I, and not having even an outdoorsy background at least at right. the time, especially like it's, yeah, it's kind of ballsy. I, feel like but I, I like that in a way um I like that I go in and I, there's nobody has nobody knows me at all for there's no preconceived notions um it's also I mean I I think this is hilarious but I like to be underestimated so they see me as like the gay boy that lives in Manhattan who's a total princess which I'm not gonna lie yes I am but like <laughs> um they see that and then I'm like well you know but I'll I'm gonna come out here and I'll do a little climbing and then it turns out that I prove myself as a pretty good teammate or a team member um and I just, I think that process is kind of fun. hundred so. percent. I love proving people wrong and, and showing up yeah. the underdog and, and coming out ahead. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's so fun. Yeah, um, I like it. Yeah, um, so man. yeah, Denali was, Denali was a three week climb. Um, it was about three weeks. I think we ended up shaving a couple of days off. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very unique experience. There's, I always, I recommend everybody, you know, that is interested in climbing. I feel like it should be a prerequisite to doing even bigger climbs too, because, like I said, you have to learn all of these actual skills. Um, you have to learn, you have to carry a tent, you have to make a tent platform, you have to set it up. And that's after you do the actual climb, you have to pull a sled behind you, you carry a massive amount of gear. You have to really be brutal when it comes to packing because you can't bring extra stuff on Denali because every single ounce you're responsible for it. You have to carry it. You can't leave it in the other place. Like it's, you really learn how to be in a sense self-sufficient um, and do a lot of the work that gets otherwise done for you when you're doing other more service climbs, such as Kilimanjaro or such as any real Himalayan climb. Um, you know, you're very independent on Denali. Mm-hmm. 
was that, where does that rank up in terms of difficult climbs that you've done? I mean, is it the second easiest or what was that one like? Well, uh, it's so hard. So, so many of these climbs, like I think of kind of the major ones that I've done, I consider that to be like Denali, Alma de Blom, Everest, and Kilimanjaro, I suppose I'd put in there. Um, but they're, they're all, they all offer something so different. And that's sure. why I actually think that I ended up being a pretty well-rounded or well-prepared mountaineer, just kind of by coincidence, as you know, I've kind of fallen into these climbs. So Denali, I think the challenge with Denali is that it's extremely remote and you do have to do everything yourself. The climbing days on Denali are, you know, fairly long, but it's not super intense climbing. It's just, it's your, your, there's slogs every day. And on Denali, you will often go, you're pulling a sled, plus you have your heavy pack. So you go up and one day, let's say you're leaving from camp two, you go up and you go halfway or three quarters of the way between camp two and camp three, you cash your goods, meaning you, you pull your stuff up to that point, you dig a giant hole and then everybody buries stuff in it. And then you go back down to your camp two. You're going to spend a night there. Then the next day, you're going to pack up all of your stuff from camp two and go all the way up to camp three, past your cache. You're going to set up camp again and then spend the night there. The next day, you're going to go down to your cache between camp two and three, unbury your stuff, put it back in your sled, carry it back up to three, spend the night again at three. And then you're going to repeat that process as you go up and up and up the mountain, you know, in certain ways. So that is, it's, it's a slog. Every day is like work. It just mm -hmm. feels like work. You're just mm -hmm. up and down, 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 retied in your sled. Um, so that can be really mentally taxing. I was fortunate. I had such an amazing group on Denali that we just, we were just all like each other's cheerleaders. And it was so fun. Like we really just, the fact that we were doing what many people would consider as totally miserable things, it didn't even dawn on us. We were just having so much fun and we liked being around each other so much. Um, so I was really fortunate with a great group because I do think that it's hard to sort of keep your morale up um, on Denali because it's it's just that work. It's just your isolated group. There's no cell phone service. There's no any. There's no outside influence whatsoever. Um, yeah, it's a cool climb. It also is never dark, which is weird. Oh yeah, that would be weird. That's it. Yeah. Never gets dark. I was so I was able to use my solar panel to charge my like battery pack inside my tent. Uh, inside like the the mesh you know pocket inside the side of the tent at midnight and it would still charge <laughs> well that's so an advantage strange. i guess <laughs> yeah yeah it was great it also meant that you know you're never racing the sun on denali so like our group went out it pretty chill like we would yeah. we would sort of wake up when we wanted to wake up we'd have our breakfast and then take our time to pack up our stuff and then get from point a to point b wherever that was in the mountain kind of at whatever pace he wanted to and then we would chill like there wasn't we weren't really you know rushed to try to, to try to beat the sunlight or try to make sunlight um so i liked that aspect of Denali. i thought it was great but it is it's it's distorting and you have it's, it's weird sometimes you got to get used to sleeping light it's it's strange but i did like it yeah looking back on that experience are there any moments that like stick out in your mind like moments that scared you or maybe moments where you bonded with people or just I don't know anything um so you get to 14,000 camp on Denali and at, up to that point you've been on varying degrees of snow slopes and it's you've been carrying up a, a, pulling a sled throughout that whole time you get to 14,000 camp and you look up at the head wall um, and that's the only place on Denali where there's even slightly technical climbing really um, and there's there's six lines and you actually are going to use a an ascender to Jumar up 
get big flying. Um, so you're looking at that from 14,000 camp. And I've seen, obviously, on all the research, I've seen lots of pictures. But something about when you take pictures of mountains, it flattens them out. Nothing looks as big or as steep as it does when you're in person. Totally. So when I'm sitting there at 14,000 camp and you're looking up at this head wall and you see the Bergschrund, which is the big crevasse break at the bottom of the, the head wall, it, it, it all just looks so big and extreme that it's really scary. And at that point, you're several days in time, you've already done a bunch of work and you realize like, oh, I've got a lot more of the work still to go. Like you kind of almost think like, oh, I've done a bunch of the work and then you realize, oh no, I actually, you haven't. And now we have this serious stuff coming. So it's a little bit daunting. So um, the first we did a the first climb that we did from fourteen thousand, we went just basically up this head wall, up the fixed lines, and then just a little bit further, and then back down all in the same day. So I was really nervous though. I was like, this because this is my first foray into any sort of real technical climbing, at least to any volume. Um, and it's just it looks scary. There's actually a lot of people that dropped the climb from Denali at fourteen thousand because mm -hmm. of this sort of intimidating, you know, like. Ugh. Um, so as soon as I started doing it though, I almost got this euphoric, like, huh, because it was, I liked it. It was good. It went really well. Um, and it was fun and I actually liked it better than I had all the previous climbing that we had done. Um, so it was this huge sense of relief, but also like joy and ecstatic because at the top of these, these fixed lines, I'm like, yeah, like this was awesome. Um, and so having something be so awesome that you were otherwise afraid of mm. um, is a really cool experience. And that's definitely happened now in many ways for me in mountaineering, um, even from the very beginning, like just these things like here, here's me, an indoor boy who lives in Manhattan, who's now going out and putting myself through these really uncomfortable situations, but they're only uncomfortable until I do them. And then I realized like, oh, not only was this doable, but it was cool and fun. And I conquered something that I was afraid of. And that has happened to me over and over and over with mountaineering. And I guess I sort of just keep upping the stakes. Um, but each mountain has definitely given me bits and pieces of that at the time of my life. Yeah, yeah. And the growth that comes from those experiences are huge, man. I mean, just yeah. like you can't put that in a book. You can't teach that in school. That just comes from experience and from going out and putting yourself in scary situations yeah. and overcoming those situations. I've had yeah. the same thing with yeah, running, ultra running, mountain projects here in Colorado, the same thing. It's just like, I don't know if I can do this, or I may be sleeping out all night out here tonight, or I'm 60 miles into a hundred mile run and I'm completely dead and I have 40 miles to go. And then somehow you make it, you know, and then you just look back and you're like, Oh my God. Like, and you, and for me personally, it's always like, I don't feel like I'm the one that is special. And I did this thing. It's like, we, as human beings all have this in us. We can all, yeah. we all have this. If, if we want to do it, most, most people don't want to do these things. And I understand that, but, uh, as human beings, our, our human potential is just like something that we've barely tapped into. It's like, we all could dig so much deeper if we really wanted to. It is. Um, I, yeah, I've got a couple of things to say about that. So, you know, I think most of the time people are really, really, really concerned and really try to keep themselves as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's, let's stay in my comfort zone, let's stay in my bubble because we work so hard to, to, to build that bubble and to be comfortable and they don't really want to get out of it. Um, but I think there's so much value in getting out of that comfort zone. Um, and I've just personally experienced that myself, you know, like it's just, it's so much expanding upon my human experience, getting out of that little bubble and comfort zone. Um, and then more like bigger onto that same 
um, on that same point is like the power of your mind over these situations. Um, there, there was definitely a time on this last expedition on Everest where maybe after like the month period or so where it was really hard for me to maintain my, my mental, you know, drive to keep doing this. And it was incredible because as soon as that sort of goes away a little bit, as soon as I started to be checked out a little bit, as soon as I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. As soon as I was thinking about wanting to be home, uh, every aspect of the climb became so much harder, so much more miserable. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's because, you know, and we all know this, but like the human body itself is capable of so, so, so much if you want it to be, if you need it to do something. But if you don't have that mental, if you're not checked in mentally, then it's not going to do it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like if I go out for a 20 mile run, I get tired at mile 15 or 16. If yeah. I go out for a 40 mile run, I don't get tired until mile 30. You know, it's, yeah. it's just funny how it works. It's like, you just have to flip that switch in your mind and, yeah. and so much as possible. Absolutely. You have to want to do it, you know? And that's, yes. I think, what got me through a lot of those miserable situations or the situations that I was extremely uncomfortable with um, in previous climbs was like, I wanted to be at the top. I wanted to say I did this. I have a lot of people to tell I did this. You know, I, I want to do this so bad. Um, and Everest was long enough to where I was, that was, that was shaky at times where I'm like, hey, I've got to figure out a way to get my head back in this game. I have to figure out a way to keep my head in this game. I've got to find out what my motivations are. I had to dig deep. Um, and it was mental. Because when it really comes to it, you know, the Everest climbs themselves, I have done harder climbs and harder days many a time, but the whole experience for me for Everest ended up being quite challenging because of the mental that had to keep myself in the game. And it was very hard to do so after two months. Mm. All right. Well, let's get into the Everest project. Um, two months, you said, is that how long you were um, going back and forth between camps, just acclimating? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, two months, two months was the entire trip. So that was from when I left New York to when I got back to New York. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, that's pretty standard. Um, you can sometimes shave it off, shave up, you know, some time off, which I did a little bit, um, because I chalkered out once I was done. Um, but yeah, it's basically a two month expedition and that that's because the, you have to trek in, you go from village to village to village, and that just gives you time to acclimate and you get to base camp, spend a little bit of time there. And then you start doing your rotations up to higher camps. And Mainly, really, those rotations are just to get your give your body time to acclimate. So the rotations, do they look similar to your pro to, to what you were doing in Denali? Just like up to one camp, stash a bunch of gear, come back down, or what? Did it look a little, a little different? Yeah, no, it's very different in the Himalayas. So okay. the camps are all set up for you. So you're really just getting you and your stuff. You know, base camp to camp one. We spent a few days at camp on the first rotation. Spent a few days at camp one, then camp one to camp two then several days at camp two, camp two to three, just one night, then back down. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, you're not cashing goods or anything like that um, on Everest, but you're just getting from camp one, camp two to camp three. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then what are you doing while you're at these camps? Just dinner, <laughs> socializing, drinking, like having a good time, or is it all business or what does it look like? Um, there's no real drinking. I mean, maybe some of the Sherpas or something are drinking, but we're all, we're all, you know, trying to think about what's going to be best for our body in terms of acclimation and, um, sure. and our health. Um, so I, I tend to be very lazy. That's kind of my philosophy when it comes to mountaineering. Um, my mountaineering on mountain philosophy is to be lazy. Uh, but yeah, you typically, you know, you, you eat, that's kind of all you do on those rest days. Um, there's when I, when I talk about the, my, my lazy mountaineering aspect, 
Um, some of those rest days, let's say like we're at camp too. It, I think we spent like four days there just doing nothing but spending time to acclimate. So some of the guys, especially mountaineering types of people tend to be kind of busybodies. They want to go, they want to do stuff. Mm -hmm. So they would go on like day hikes from camp too. Um, you know, hiking up somewhere around or whatever. I don't do that. Um, I would usually sit around and expend as little energy as possible. Um, I would watch movies typically on my phone um, and then just wait for the next meal time. And then if anybody wanted to talk, I'd sit there and we'd talk for a few hours. Like there's just, it's crazy because you don't have this, this sort of time without stress in your regular life. So you get there and I'm like, yeah, we can just sit around and talk about nothing. And it's really cool to have those experiences with people. But so I would do nothing because I place a very high value on uh, recovery when it comes to doing these things. And recovery in this sort of environment is very difficult to achieve anyways. So I think that a lot of the guys and women and when we've only had one woman on our team. So I think a lot of the people that are doing mountaineering, you know, they're the busybody type, they have to go, they have to keep climbing. And there's a lot of research too, that shows that it's good for them to keep doing this. So to each their own. I, however, you know, with the high value placed upon that recovery and realizing there's so many factors working against your recovery. I, I like to sit around. I like to get as much rejuvenation and recovery in as possible. Um, it's if you think, you know, you're doing an incredible amount of physical work. There was sometimes there were some days I was burning off like 8,500 calories. I'm not eating much of anything because I, you know, I don't love the food. It's just tough to eat anyways. The out the altitude takes away your appetite a little bit. You need to drink a ton of water, um, which you know you really have to keep track of, and it's a chore because if you're trying to drink six liters, you need to plan it. Every bit of water you have to do gets scary penned. It comes too hot. You have to wait for it to get cool. Like it's it's work to really mm -hmm. stay on top of this. And then sleeping is a challenge. It's, you know, you don't sleep very well at altitude anyways, then you're in these very uncomfortable, like sometimes small, wet tents. Um, so all of those factors, you know, if I was burning off 8,500 calories, let's say, working out even at sea level, it would require a decent amount of time, rest, recovery, and nutrition for me to get good recovery. Um, trying to do all of that while also acclimating to 23,650 feet, like at Camp 3, it doesn't, I, I just don't think that you get very good recovery, even if you are just laying around, let alone spending your time doing extra hiking and climbs. Um, so I tend to be pretty lazy when I don't have to be. I, do, I, I perform when I have to for the climbs and then I wanna get as much rest and recovery as possible. I like to look at it as, you know, I've been training up hard for a sporting event and I like to think of the climb as the event. So mm -hmm. I'm not gonna keep training during the event for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna do all my training up front and then I get to the event and it's just perform when I need to and all the rest of the time recover. So that's my theory behind it. But um, there's a, a lot of conflicting information about that, but it has worked well for me. So yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. Makes sense. You said the food over there is not that enjoyable. What are you guys eating? It is not. Oh gosh. The Sherpas are not. cooking food every night. Yes, they sure are. Um, the, I, it would, the whole day would go by and it would be all white, meaning breakfast would start and it would usually be porridge. If you were lucky enough, if you were at base camp, they might have some toast, which was great, but it was pretty rare. It would usually just be porridge. So that's it. Then lunch would be either be a noodle or rice. Typically, like if you were lucky, it would be like top ramen because there was a lot of flavor um, with and salty stuff, but other times it would just be like plain noodles. And dinner would just be either a noodle or rice, whichever you did not have for lunch. Um, and the rice would oftentimes be dal bot, which is rice and lentil, like kind of a lentil stew put over the top of it. Um, so it was all white. Like you look at it, it's all white food. And I'm like, oh gosh. And as somebody who's here, I drink, I eat a ton of protein and you have a lot of fat, like really rich. 
and going there where it was just basically all carbs. all carbs and for two months it was really tough for me at least i also personally i just i hate rice i don't eat rice here i don't i know <laughs> i know that's always going to be a challenge when i'm going to the himalayas but uh two months was rough <laughs> uh, every time they serve rice it was just Oh, I couldn't, I'm like, I'm, I'm hungry kind of, but then I'm not, and I don't want to eat. And then I'm angry. There's more rice. Like, yeah. it, was, it was a challenge. Um, I lost 25 pounds as well oh, wow. um, doing Everest. Yeah. Is there any other options for food? I mean, uh, can you pack in dried foods or is, it, yeah. is there anything you can do? You know, you can eat dehy meals up to a certain point, but your body, you shouldn't really eat dehy meals all the time. And also right. you're not going to want to, um, then there's snacks. But, you know, you can, there comes a point where you're like, I can't necessarily, I mean, you could, but you don't want to continue to survive on granola bars and cheeses and fruit snacks. You know, it's just, you just want a hot meal served on totally. a plate. Yeah. Um, and so when you, then I, you know, you go to the tent and the hot meal is more rice. I'm like, oh, God help me. <laughs> uh, you just wanted a hot meal and all you get is rice. And yeah. I, I mean, that's great for some people, but yeah. I was. Oh man, the rice is tough for me. Um, so yeah, 25 pounds of, and I have a body composition scale. So I really like 25 pounds of muscle. I actually, my body fat percentage went up because um, you're just eating sugar oh, and wow. crap. Yeah. Um, and then my, you know, I lost actually more than 25 pounds, but 25 pounds of muscle predominantly. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm picturing Jason Howell probably in the gym right now, trying to get that muscle back that he lost out there. <laughs> man, he is so strong. He, so he was, you know, doing his attempt without oxygen and that is a, an entire level above and beyond any training and any ability that I have. Like those guys and women are so strong, really, so strong, so strong. Like it's wild that they can, oh man, like he did an extra rotation. When I went down to Namche in between our rotations, which is another village lower, um, I went down there and several, most of our team did just to like rest and recover. He's up doing another rotation all the way to camp four without oxygen. Like just those, those people are on a whole nother level. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have a hard time understanding it because I've never been to the Himalayas and I've never been above 14,000 feet. And when he told me he was trying to do this without supplemental oxygen, it's like, okay, that's like an alpha male thing to do. I get it. But I think it's just, it's, there's so much more to it that I just don't really understand. I mean, it just, it sounds really intense. It is. It's, I mean, the human body, I, a lot of times when we think of these physical feats, we think of like, well, it's, most people, if they were to put themselves through this adequate training, could achieve that. But I do think that when it comes to doing like Everest without oxygen, that's not everybody's physiology is capable of it, period, regardless of the training. So there's mm -hmm. that first off. And then just the level of discipline and training that it requires to do it is just insanity. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, they have to, they have to really time each breath making sure that they, you know, don't get their heart rate up too high, but that's so hard at that high of an altitude. And we were doing the work, like just every little detail has to be perfect. They have to have perfect weather. And it's also, this is the part that scares the light up, scares the daylights out of me. Like it's so dangerous. There's, if you look at the statistics of people, like how many people have died and how many of them were attempting with oxygen versus how many attempt without oxygen in total, like it's, it's terrible statistics. And then there's all we look at in general is, death statistics but they don't really they don't really keep in or they don't really keep track of like how many people have lost fingers and toes because they were right. trying to do it without oxygen you're much more likely to suffer all these other injuries without oxygen too um i mean to give an idea though just how like crazy it is too whenever i would take my oxygen mask off 
um, like when I'm sitting on the summit, taking pictures and videos, take my oxygen mask off. I'm not even working. I'm sitting at this point. And almost like within five, 10 seconds, I start to feel lightheaded. Mm. And that's just five or 10 seconds up there and sitting down versus then you have guys like Jason coming up here, like still on their feet, still walking without an oxygen mask. It's, Damn. I mean, it's wild. Like those, those people are strong wow. and just, they're like inhuman. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That sort of gives me a, a little bit of a better picture and better idea of what it's like, but yeah, it sounds insane. Um, I want to ask about a couple of the taboo, like sort of uncomfortable things about Everest and yeah. you tell me what your thoughts are or, yeah, I don't even know how to approach this, but it sounds like when, when people are up there, there's a lot of people up there. Um, I've seen lines of people trying to get up to the summit where it's just, you know, 20, 30, 40 people all lined up trying to get up there. I mean, what was your experience like? I mean, people are traveling from all over the world, paying lots of money to come and do this thing so they can say that they did it. And it's almost like an ego thing, you know? Um, yeah. What was your experience? Was it, did it seem too crowded out there or what was it like? So, uh, you know, where the crowds really matter the most on Everest is on your summit bid, um, on, you know, on summit day. And very fortunate and much credit to the company that I went with. We waited until a little bit later. So my summit bid and Jason's as well was on the 21st. Um, summit bids on our, on this last season started on the 13th. Um, I have a really good friend who is up there or who was up there and she ended up, which was with a different company. Um, she went up on the first summit window on the 13th. She said it was a terrible experience. There was, she said she estimated around 200 people trying to summit that day alone wow. on that summit window. Now compare and contrast that with our summit window, we were the only team up there and there was a scattered few other people, probably not even as many as was on our team in total. So, I, I mean, we also had perfect weather for a summit i mean in relative terms it's still very cold obviously you're at the top of mount everest but like we had not it wasn't super windy we had no storm we had great visibility i mean we had an incredible summit day with no crowds so the takeaway from that though was you know you have a lot of climbers and as you said like some people are a lot of people doing this for ego whatever point being is that most of the time climbers especially the ones up doing everest are very much type a people and so mm -hmm. when that summit window started to open on the 13th there's a huge rush of people that want to get up there first thing. They want to get it up there. It's the first window. They want to open it up. You can't be guaranteed other summit windows. Yes. Although, I mean, they're going to happen. Um, and so it, there's crowds right at the beginning, but you know, we waited um, as per the recommendation for, from like Dan and David, which are our guides and the owners of the company that I went with. Um, and it was hard to wait. I will say that I had this giant cloud of anxiety hanging over me the whole time because I'm, there's other people summiting and I'm still thinking like, Oh, I still have to get up biggest mountain in the world that's up to do this climb like so just sitting there waiting was torture mm, in a sense yeah, but yeah. it all worked out really well in the end because we had an incredible summer day so the crowds um you know it's it's not as bad as i anticipated that was actually the main reason why i said i wasn't interested in doing everest for years beforehand because i do not want i live in manhattan i don't want to go somewhere and then have crowds you know <laughs> um but it was not as bad as i thought also it was more avoidable than um, than I could have expected. Um, cause there's, you know, you, there, there's, yes, there's one route of this mountain and there's lots of teams, but like there's big windows and people are kind of going up and down at alternating times and stuff. So, you know, we got, I had a great time in that sense. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it never felt too crowded for me. What about when you're at camp, uh, you know, you're at camp, you look around, how many people are at 
a camp at a time? Um, well, base camp is also a lot different than the upper camps. So sure. Okay. Base camp is like a small city. It's crazy. It's, mm. it's, I have videos of me when I'm choppering over it and it just keeps going and going and going. And I mean, I didn't actually do this, but if you were to try to walk from one side of base camp all the way to the other, it would probably be like an hour and a half, two hours of walking. Mm. Um, it's slow walking because you're up high and it's like loose rocks on a glacial moraine. So it's not pleasant to walk, but nonetheless, it's big. Um, and there's lots of people. There isn't a ton of intermingling right now between camps um, because everybody's really worried about sickness, whether it be COVID or even otherwise. Um, you know, sickness keeps a lot of people from being able to do their summit bid. So now, especially with COVID, a lot of camps or some camps are even closed, like no visitors, period. It could only be like the group. Um, so it's not super social. You know, you hear some people and whatnot, but it's not incredibly social among like from camp to camp to camp. I wish there was a little bit more, but it's also kind of hard to it's uncomfortable to move around like it's it's hard for sure and it's it's also like I, I mean i think other people are probably a little bit better at it than i am but like trying to find your way through base camp was really tricky like because it's there isn't there, there isn't necessarily one trail that goes through it it's just camps placed on places and I'm like i don't know how to get to the camp and then i don't know how to get back you know <laughs> get kind get, of lost get lost out there yeah no kidding yeah and then another question is, you know, obviously a lot of people perish on Mount Everest and it's almost impossible to bring their bodies down. And, you know, I've heard people talk about how it's just a graveyard up there and there's just bodies all over the place. And I'm sure that's true to a certain extent, but it's probably a little bit exaggerated too. Like, what was your experience with that? Yeah, you'll see bodies. Um, you will. And so if that's something that you're extremely averse to, well, then don't go because it, it does happen. Is it like a big graveyard? Absolutely not. Um, so anything, basically, they can do a helicopter rescue at camp two. They, if the conditions are right, and that's a giant if because it almost never happens. If the conditions are right, they could do a long line rescue from camp three, meaning they drop the cable down and you attach you know, to, your, to your harness and you're flown through the air hanging from a helicopter. Um, anything above that though, there's no rescue whatsoever. And so if, especially anything above camp four, if you can't get yourself down or if they can't really carry you down and that's pretty tricky, then your body's stuck there. Um, mm. People don't quite understand. I didn't, I don't think I even really fully understand it until I or understood until I went up there. Um, it's impossible. So there's no chopper rescue to lift anything out, but then like some of the, some of the intact bodies that you'll see are like right on the summit ridge. So you know, within 30 minutes of the actual summit, you can see the summit right there. And there's a dead body right there in, in, in full, it's, it's fully intact. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no way, like, you know, they can't, with the terrain that you have to go through, as well as all of the stuff that you need to carry for your own survival to even get up to that point and then to get back down, there's no way that they could hook up, let's say a stretcher and bring a body in between any number of people. Like there's, there's little bits of like technical stuff and rock slabs that you're on that you have to then hit ropes like it's it would just not be possible to carry it and i mean i made this kind of morbid joke to a friend of mine but i was like you know the only way they can do it is that they like put the body in pieces and put it in packs because there's no way they could carry like an intact body from places where they're at up that high there's just it's just not possible um and so there's and there's also sometimes you see there's, there's only a couple bodies that you see that are right on your route that are fully intact that it's like you know bow bam hit you in the face but there's definitely like, sometimes you see 50 feet away, 60 feet away, you'll see just kind of like an amorphous lump in the snow with some colorful clothes and a pack and you're like, okay, well, obviously that's a body, but you know, you're far enough away from it. It's, it's, eh. 
Um, but yeah, you will be faced with a couple that are very much real. Um, and it's, it's weird, the effect that it has on people, on me. Um, me personally, the first thing I thought, it was just, I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely doing Everest now. Then, you know, you heard about the bodies and nope, it's happening. Um, but then also like, there's a lot of respect because I'm looking at this person who's laying there and I'm like, this person was probably in at least as good a shape as me, if not better. Maybe it was more experienced than me and was very motivated. And one thing, something just went wrong. And that's all it takes. That's how close we are when we're teetering. That's how close we are to death up here, all of us. Like we're one malfunction of something away from dying. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very real when you see it. Yeah. 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 And to get those bodies down, you would be risking lives, you know, I mean, for yeah. someone to do some sort of a body rescue, yeah, they, they would be risking their own life to carry that person down. And it just does not make sense. Like you said, it's impossible. Yeah. That would be, I mean, even attempting it would be wildly dangerous for the people of trying to bring the bodies down. Um, and that's why I don't think it's ever really even attempted. I mean, most of the time, once they're up that high, it's, I, I think out of respect, they'll sort of leave the body where it falls um, and then just kind of let the elements swipe it down the mountain. Because I don't think anybody necessarily mm -hmm. wants to be the person that's going to go shove somebody up the mountain. Um, it seems like, you know, kind of sacrilegious or whatever. But so they'll just kind of let nature, you know, take it. Um, and then usually they're going to fall into a place where you can't, where you don't see them. Um, they're off of, they're off of the path that we're going to take. What about their belongings or their backpack or anything? Do, do people try and retrieve those or what's that like? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, the, the bodies that I saw, I think they still had their packs on. Sure. Kind of tough because they're on their back. Um, no, I think usually they're just kind of left. Wow. Wow. In full form. All right. Well, let's try and dig our way out of this morbid topic, but like, was there any doubt in your mind when you're on your way up to the summit, whether it's the day of the summit or a few days before, were there ever any doubts? Like this might not happen. This might not be my time. Or were you pretty confident the whole time? Mm, I think once I could mentally keep myself into it, I was there. Once also, once the summit bit started, I'm like, absolutely, I'm making this summit. I mean, I was feeling good. And at that point, I was actually kind of past all of the parts that I was afraid of not being able to achieve. Um, I think the hardest part for me was, well, the anxiety as I'm down in Namche, we're waiting to do our summit bid and waiting to fly back to the base camp. Um, I was pretty nervous then. Um, I was anxious. Um, then getting back to base camp, the preparations like the night before the actual summit bid that was rough for me i was very anxious i wasn't sure wasn't mentally in it so much i'm just like oh gosh i have to do all this climb still and then go further than i already have like i was just really nervous at that point um but i think that's you know that's kind of been similar to me with other with other summits and other climbs as soon as i actually start doing the climbing then i'm in mm. then i'm good um and I, fortunately, you know, I, I felt really good. I had a great tent mate with me at camp four, um, up in, up in the South pole. And we spent like their whole, all of our time, like being really good and really prepared for our son of it. I mean, we prepared every single little thing. And that, I mean, that's how I like to climb is being super prepared. Um, I mean, it just, you think of, you think of everything, every layer, everything that you could possibly think of, you try to fix and get everything perfectly fine tuned for your son of it. And we did that really well. And so when it came to summit bit, I'm like, I'm physically feeling good. I have everything packed perfectly and taken care of. I know exactly where everything is. I have a contingency plan for everything. Now it's go time. Mm. Um, so I felt great for that summit bit. I mean, as soon as I 
basically as soon as I got to camp four, I was like, okay, now I'm in. Now I'm done. Mm-hmm. I got this. Nice. Okay. So you, you top out, you hit the summit. You said you're not really a sentimental person. Did you have a moment up there where you just sort of took it all in and appreciated it or were, I mean, again, getting down is gotta be a big stressor. Like, okay, I made it to the top, but I still have a long, long ways to go. Yeah. Um, What was your experience there? I actually, now that I think about it too, like I actually wish that I would have taken a little bit of a moment just by myself to like really look at it. But I, I didn't like, I, I just, took my pictures, took my videos, my oxygen mask had frozen up. So they gave me a new oxygen mask up there, which was amazing. I felt like a whole new person once I got a new oxygen mask. Um, and then it was time to get down. Um, and I'm always, you know, so when I did Ama de Blom, Ama de Blom is very technical. And so the down climbing is in a sense, damn near as hard as the up. Um, and it requires a lot. You have to be very careful um, when you're down climbing every, every step that you take, you know, if you were to break loose and you're down climbing, like gravity's going to take you further. If you break loose when you're up climbing, it's just like, well, one step's screwed. Like it's not a big deal. Um, so I find the down climbing actually be pretty stressful, although it's, it's faster and you have gravity working for you. So it's not necessarily, it's physically hard. Um, I also knew that I wanted to get all the way back down to camp two in the same day, um, which is oh, really? a lot. Yeah. yeah. So we went from the South Pole, camp four, up to the summit, and then four three and then two so that was a long day Um, and I knew I I knew I had all of that still to go um so it was really yeah I I just didn't take much time for the sentimentality and I I, sure maybe I wish I did a little bit more um Mm. but I have the videos to show for it so for sure how many hours was that day in total Ooh, so I think we left camp four at 9 30 p.m p.m we summited at 5 30 a.m um I ended up rolling, I took, I, so I took a big break at camp three on the way back down to sort of just re- try to rehydrate, rest and take some time because at that point we've done a lot. Um, so I think I spent like four hours at camp three. Ultimately, I think I landed back in camp two at like 7.30 PM. Okay. It was right. The sun had, the sun had just gone down. So it was, yeah, like 7.30 PM. So 22 hours or so, if hours, I include, yeah. that's including all the rest that I took though. Hmm. is there a big celebratory feel among the people who summited like are you high-fiving each other on the way down like we did it or is it all business or what's it like um there's a little bit of euphoria you're very happy um you're very like oh wow it's done and you're kind of on cloud nine and you use some of that adrenaline and energy to like get you down um but at that point too like once you even roll into camp too like you're exhausted and you know knackered to the point you're like you know, you don't speak all that much. You're just like, oh, going to fall down into the tent and relax. Um, you know, when I got to the tent that night, I just, I took off my like outer boots, left the crampons on them and just left them outside of my tent. I unrolled my sleeping mat and pad, blew it up, unrolled my sleeping bag and just fully clothed everything. Just like crawled into the sleeping bag and just fell asleep on my side. Like, it, you know, you're giving it the bare minimum at this point. Um, so you don't, I, and I didn't, I didn't really get much time like back with the group right after the climb like we're all kind of scattered some people stayed at four some people stayed at three mm-hmm. and then we're at two um and then the next morning some people took off so it's like we're all a little bit scattered so you know whenever you saw anybody it was like, yeah we did it but you're so knackered and um still focused on like okay well now now it's over now it's time to get out at least i was um i was very much 
once I, once I checked it off, once I did my summit, I was ready to be done, ready to be out. I wanted to be out of Nepal. I wanted to be back home. I wanted level floors. I wanted a faucet to turn on. I wanted a toilet to sit on and I wanted food to eat right. food that was not white. Yes. I wanted vegetables so bad. Um, <laughs> and so at that point too, I was just like, get me out, done. Like I achieved it. I went out now. For sure. Well, yeah. congratulations, man. You did it. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, I'm curious in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that your, your dad was a green beret. Is he still around? Yeah. Yeah. He is. Do you still have contact with him? Like, what does yeah. he think of this? I, I'm curious. Like you mentioned that, you know, you grew up a gay boy and your dad was a green beret. Like I'm guessing there had to have been some conflict there at some point or another. And then, but now you just climbed the biggest mountain in the world. Like, is there some sort of a full circle or what's that relationship like? Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I, he, he got me to do a lot of outdoorsy stuff, much to my chagrin. I didn't like it so much then. Um, but it's definitely come full circle and much to his credit. There's so many things that he taught me that I, it's almost like I was resistant to learn, but I still learned. Um, just little things that I've, you know, I, that really have helped me as I've grown up. Um, and yeah, we're in contact now. We're, we've been in contact the whole time. He thinks it's super cool, obviously. My family is super supportive and super cool about it. Um, they're also hilarious because I, like, I, I remember talking to my dad after I did the, the training course and he's like, well, this was years ago. This was in 2020. Um, he said, he's like, so do you want to do Everest? And I was like, not really. It's too crowded, too cliche. I'm not really that interested. He's like, well, you should do K2. <laughs> and I'm like, only my family would be the family that would say like, yeah, you should do K2. Like most families are like, oh, absolutely. Don't you dare. Ne like never. You're going to, it's too dangerous. My family's like, go for it. Um, and that's, you know, definitely my dad and my mom both are like, yeah, they think it's awesome. Um, and it's great. It's also given me something to like reconnect with them and like have a lot of content to talk about with them. Um, and also, I mean, my, my dad is still so fit, like with some training, I think he could still probably do it, which is crazy. He and Jason are both Green Berets. And there was such, there's so many weird similarities between Jason and some of the things that he would say on the trip. And really? my dad growing up. Yeah, because like they've gone through the same training. And I don't think that training has changed dramatically in the 40 years since Jason or between Jason and my dad. So there's so many things that I was like, these people are wildly similar. <laughs> and also the fact that Jason is such a badass and so strong. <laughs> like that, that they have that in common for sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah. Um, what about your friends, your peers, uh, people in Manhattan? Uh, what do people think of this? I mean, again, you climb the biggest mountain in the world. Like, are people impressed? Are people blown away? Are people, I don't know, how, how, how do people react? You know, everybody just thought it was kind of weird that I was doing climbing before Everest, but then Everest has that certain panache, you know, it's Mount Everest. So everybody's seen movies and stuff. So a lot of people think it's really cool. Um, I don't think that the gravity of it really sets in with most people because they don't even go outside, you know, so right. it, it doesn't like, eh. but, um, and then in terms of like my the gay community of the culture, nobody cares at all Really? <laughs> because no, I mean, like I, maybe some people think it's cool. I don't know. I haven't been back long enough to also have that many interactions quite yet. Um, but uh, you know, it's not in their wheelhouse. Um, but I honestly, that's kind of what I, I love that about it too. I love that it's, if you people that knew me and if you know me, like it's not on brand for me. And that's why I love it. Like I, I want to shock people. Um, yeah. I like that. It's shocking. I like that. It's totally unexpected. And 
and now I can say like, and, you know, I, I don't just do a few little hikes. Like I've also climbed Mount Everest. So, <laughs> no doubt. You, know, <laughs> you can't really ignore that part of me. Anymore. Uh, okay. And then one last question, and it's a little bit cliche, but I have to ask it. What's next? Have you thought about anything? I mean, like, wh- how do you top this? <laughs> well, there is. So my bucket list climb was always K2. K2. Um, okay. Yeah. Which is definitely, you know, way harder than Everest. And, mm. um, I don't, I'm not certain that I'm going to do it still. Um, I was really driven to always do it, but now after having done this two month expedition and realizing how hard it was for me personally to keep my mind in the game and to keep wanting to climb once that really like the one month um, ticked over, uh, you know, I don't, I got to make sure that I want to do K2 um, because it's, it's a much harder climb, much technically much more difficult, but then the whole experience is way harder. It's Pakistan. It's two months. It's, there's no cute little villages on the way up. There's no choppering out as soon as you're done. Like it's it's a tough trip, let alone a horrendously difficult climb and an extremely dangerous climb and expensive. So that's been my plan. My plan was to do that next summer in 2023. I don't think I'm going to do it in 2023. Um, if I do it, I think it'll be a year or two after that. Um, I think in the meantime, though, I'll probably, I one of the guys that was on this trip was in Chamonix. And so there's lots of little like, day climbs and you know smaller things I could do kind of in between um so yeah we'll see if I get to K2 this might be my swan song when it comes to the big big long expeditions but I also know myself well enough to know like once I've had a few more months to sort of forget the misery that was the two-month expedition on Everest like eh, it might come creeping back in I might end up on K2 sooner than you think but um we'll see I've got to I mean I'm going to train hard and just stay, stay up on the training. That way I, once again, if I decide to fall into another crazy expedition, I'll be ready. <laughs> Which is probably is what, it's probably what's going to happen. Like it's probably gonna, what's going to happen. Gonna lay out this trip right in front of you and say, you want to yeah. do it next month. So yep. yeah, stay I'll, in shape. I'll tell you what, if I end up getting like any sort of sponsors that pay for it, that'll also be a huge thing. Cause uh-huh. I pay for everything myself and it's extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, and so if I ended up, and that of course would be the time where I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to do it. And then I would get a sponsorship and like, oh, great. Well, now I'm going to do it. So we'll see if that ever happens. Well, keep your options open. It'll probably happen yeah. at some point. Yeah, cool, we'll man. See. Well, this has been a great conversation. It's an honor to have you on, man. And uh, I look Thanks forward so to yeah seeing what's in your future. And, and I'm going to go back through your Instagram and like look through all the pictures and stuff now because I want to dig in a little bit deeper, but Cool. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing the story. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Of course, man. Talk soon. Take care. Well, thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what we are doing at Big Things Crewing or you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating to us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash do big things is where you can drop a dollar in the hat, so to speak. I'd like to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers. Without you guys, this isn't possible. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, Exoskin. Their running apparel keeps you comfortable in absolutely any condition. Say goodbye to chafing and blisters. Check them out. Exoskin.us. Use our discount code, capital BTC, for 15% off. I also want to tell you guys real quick about Bigger Than the Trail. Bigger Than the Trail is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that is using trail running as a platform to advocate for mental health. If you've ever thought about getting therapy but aren't in the position where you can afford it or you don't have insurance, Bigger Than the Trail offers you free therapy for three months. 
Yes, you got it. I said it. You heard it right. I couldn't love what these guys are doing more. I signed up for it. It was quick. It was easy. Within 48 hours, I had a, a therapist that met all my pre-requirements. It was all matched up with me and met my personal criteria. And I met with her every week for, I don't know, a couple months. And, uh, you know, I, I, I met with her until I felt a little bit better. And, uh, you know, I'm trying this thing. You guys should try this thing. And, you know, we can all do it together. Look up bigger than the trail. Sign up for the services and let's do the small things in life that eventually lead us to doing the big things. Let them know we sent you. Also, we want to thank Alter Ego Running. They make pre premium performance hats. Everyone needs a good lid or two when you're out running on an epic adventure. Uh, these hats should be your go-to on everyday runs, epic adventures, and just cruising around town. Check out Alter Ego Running. Use our promo code capital all caps, do big things, and that's for 20% off. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest non-alcoholic craft beer in the market. Check out athleticbrewing.com and use my discount code, McRobertsA20, all caps, for 20% off the finest non-alcoholic beer around. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. Remember, guys, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.